We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of 9 to 5 on December 19th, 1980. It was written by Colin Higgins and Patricia Resnick, based on a story by Resnick, directed by Colin Higgins, and released by 20th Century Fox. Jake Gyllenhaal was born today. Happy 40th birthday, Jake Gyllenhaal. The original idea came from Jane Fonda. It was envisioned as a drama to start, but Fonda had been long interested in working with Tomlin and decided that a comedy would be a better fit and didn't run the same risk of coming off as too preachy. Patricia Resnick was brought on to write the first draft, and when director Higgins was attached, he also did a rewrite on the script. The three parts were all written specifically for the actresses who played them. Lily Tomlin turned the role down at first on account of feeling overworked having just rapped on The Incredible Shrinking Woman, but her wife talked her into retracting her resignation. Parton agreed to play the part on the condition that she could also write and perform the film's theme song, and she was consequently nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song, but as we know, lost to fame. I'm gonna live forever. It shouldn't have. Parton was later sued by a couple who alleged that the song plagiarized from something they had written, and they turned down a settlement on the way to losing the case when Parton appeared in court and pointed out the five-note melody that they claimed was the stolen part was also a very common melody used in a dozen other popular songs at the time. It was the second highest-grossing film of the year after Empire Strikes Back and the highest-grossing female-led film ever because it made over $100 million uh, ever at the time. At the time. In the early 80s, Higgins started to work on a sequel, and Tom Mankiewicz was brought on to rewrite it, but the cast was never happy with the story, and Higgins said his heart wasn't in it. In 82, the film was adapted into a television series. Rita Moreno took over the Fonda role. Lily Tomlin's part was played by Jane Curtin's cousin, Valerie Curtin, and Dolly Parton's role went to Rachel Dennison, Parton's real-life younger sister. Jeffrey Tambor played Mr. Hart, and Sally Struthers replaced Rita Moreno after the third season. It ran for five. Uh, Peter Boners replaced Tambor after the first season. It was also adapted into a short Broadway run with Allison Janney as Violet and Megan Hilty, Glenda from Wicked, as Dora Lee. In 2018, the subject of a sequel was brought up again, and all three stars were attached to reprise their roles. Rashida Jones worked on a draft with the original story writer, Patricia Resnick, but as of about a year ago, Dolly Parton said the project was dropped. We start the film with a crooked O and a 20th century logo. Despite the film taking place in Los Angeles, we open with decidedly San Francisco footage, uh, including one insert of a pair of twins known locally as the San Francisco Twins. We see a credit for composer Charles Fox, who worked earlier this year on Little Darlings, as well as the two Gilbert Cates films, Last Married Couple and Oh God Book Two. He previously worked on the music department for Jane Fonda's Barbarella. 
Speaking of which, we see Fonda as Judy Burnley arriving at her first day of work in a skyscraper. She's dressed very prim and proper with a large hat and large glasses and seems very nervous as she gets into the elevator. She dives out of it at the last second, but I'm not sure why unless she's just having second thoughts and being intimidated by the job. We cut to Lily Tomlin as Violet Newstead arguing with Norman about the new hire. She doesn't want to be in charge of training her. Norman says, come on, give her a break. She's eager to learn and she's motivated because she's recently divorced. And then Violet points out her situation isn't much easier. So, and I'm a widow with four kids. Jerry should never have died. I could, I'd be better off. I could have divorced him. Violet starts to show Judy the ropes when they bump into Eddie from the mailroom, who is disappointed that they're still hiring people from outside when he's been trying to work his way up for years. Judy starts work today. What? Look, how am I ever going to get out of this mailroom prison if they keep hiring people from the outside? Lady, you're going to hate it here. Violet takes Judy up to the 12th floor to see the executive suites and coincidentally mentions that she's been here for 12 years and she's never seen the chairman of the board. All of these sets are incredibly expansive and they were all built for the movie. They built a two-story set this was of a, a building. Yeah. I was certain they just shot this in an office building. No, they, they completely built it. Why? I'm sure it, it was reused Why? multiple times in other movies. <laughs> Maybe. They just didn't have an office set. But that's what this was. It just seems so unnecessary. Right away, they are accosted by Roz, who Violet refers to as General Patton as she approaches. She lets Violet know that her section the third of the workforce she is in charge of supervising, has been lax about certain office rules. Uh-huh. You seem to be getting a bit lax in your section. Oh, really, Roz? How? Well, I have um, typed it up here. No uh, coffee cups on the desks, no personal items left in view, photos, plants, etc. Uh-huh. We um, mustn't look cluttered or sloppy. Uh-uh. An office that looks efficient efficient, efficient is efficient, as Mr. Hart says. Roz is Mr. Hart's administrative assistant and whipcracker, and she hands Violet the memo, and Violet says, Thanks, Roz. I know just where to stick it. Good. She puts just the right attitude on this phrase so that we know what she means, and Roz probably knows too, but it could be confused for polite conversation. Violet gets to her desk and points out Mr. Hart's office. Apparently, he just made the jump to vice president in record time from her experience. She trained him when he was a management trainee, and now he's her boss. We go into Mr. Hart's office where he's telling Judy his philosophy on management. He's using lessons he learned in high school football with regard to teamwork. And he's telling them, oh, it's too bad you girls can't have teamwork classes because you have no idea what the word teamwork means. You couldn't possibly know unless you were on a football team at some point. Dabney Coleman actually looks really dapper here. Mm -hmm. He's wearing this button-up vest with long sleeves and he's thinner than I feel like I've ever seen him. Um, Dapper Dabney? Yeah, it's dap- this is the dap- dapperest dap- dapper Dabney Coleman. I've seen. Yeah, Dapper Coleman. He takes a seat in his chair and it collapses under him. Hart is suddenly reminded that he needs to buy his wife a gift, and he puts Violet in charge of that. She is reluctant to accept this task, as it's obviously outside her job description, but when he holds her potential promotion hostage, she gives in. He also leaves a coffee order with Violet since his secretary is away from her desk. Just as they step outside... Dora Lee, as played by Dolly Parton, returns from filling up Mr. Hart's gas tank. That's why she was away from the desk. Judy is introduced to Dora Lee, and Dora Lee says, I hope everyone's been treating you real friendly, showing you around. Everybody's been very nice, thank you. I was really hoping she would say kind here, because the beginning of the line reminded me of John Hurt saying it in Elephant Man. Everybody's been very kind. (laughs) 
Um, it's easy to remember the actresses playing these parts because Jane is Judy, Dolly is Dora Lee, Lily is Violet. So they just switched flowers. <laughs> Trudy seems very uncomfortable to talk to Dora Lee, and I think it's entirely because of Dolly Parton's enormous breasts. Is that the only problem she has here? Because she keeps looking down at her own chest and like holding on to it while she's looking at yeah, Dolly Parton's boobs. Uh, we get a quick montage of Jane Fonda being bad at her job, dropping calls, destroying a Rolodex. Violet tells some of her co-workers that she needs to step out to buy a scarf for Mrs. Hart, and they joke that Dora Lee should have to do it since she does everything for Mr. Hart. At the mall, Judy asks what they meant, and Violet explains that it's understood around the office that they are in an extramarital relationship. But we'll learn later why Dora Lee wasn't asked to buy this scarf. Mm -hmm. Fonda is disgusted because her husband recently left her for his secretary, and Violet seems confident that won't happen in this case because Mrs. Hart is madly in love with him, and he'll be very careful considering she comes from money, and he wouldn't want to lose the golden goose. Back in Mr. Hart's office, he's balancing things precariously on his desk and then paging Dora Lee to come in and take notes. First, he asks her to turn around so that he can appreciate her form from every angle, then he asks her to take down a message. But just as he starts to recite it, he intentionally knocks a cup of pens and pencils off his desk. And when she bends over to collect them, he stares down into her cleavage from above, which was the plan from the beginning, obviously. He moves around the desk to apologize for some inappropriate interaction the day before, and he prepares to offer her a gift as an apology. We learn that what happened was he booked a hotel room for both of them to go to a conference mm -hmm. and then it turned out there wasn't a conference so he just booked a hotel room for the two yeah. of them but but she's like i learned my lesson to check if there's actually a conference when i'm asked to go work yeah. at a conference and it turns out nothing <laughs> happened anyway but that he played it off as a misunderstanding when things didn't work out the way he wanted them to yeah i also like that she says i've been chased by swifter men than you oh, don't you worry about it mr hart i've been chased by swifter men than you and i ain't been caught yet as he hands her the gift he also provides a backhanded compliment. You know, you mean so much more to me than just a dumb secretary. So I bought this for you. I picked it out myself. The gift is a scarf. It's the one that Violet just bought. And then he comes right out with it. He's proposing an affair with her. Mr. Hart, I've told you before, I'm a married woman. And I'm a married man. That's what makes it so perfect. Oh, Mr. Hart. No, Dorothy, ah! please. Look, I want you. Oh, for She has to wrestle her way out of his grasp and he falls to the floor just as his wife walks in. He tells her he tripped. Mrs. Hart compliments the scarf, and she says, oh, thanks, it was a gift from your husband, and she's not remotely suspicious of this. Yeah, or intimidated. Right. On the contrary, she thinks it's very sweet that her husband was so thoughtful to buy a scarf for his secretary. Mrs. Hart is here with brochures for Italian cruises. She wants to take Franklin on one, and she hands them to him to look over. Apparently, they're four weeks long, and he's not excited about that because he doesn't want to be away from the office for that long. And he refers to them as with a racial slur yes. against the Italian people. It's the kind of racial slur that Sean Connery would use to describe Alex Trebek's mustache. Yes. You think you're pretty smart, don't you, Trebek? <laughs> what with your dago mustache on your greasy hair? Look, <laughs> what did I just say about ethnic slurs? <laughs> I tried to Google that word because I didn't oh, know it's, what it it's meant. a slur for Italian people. Mm. <laughs> so dumb that I still couldn't figure it out. I'm like, I don't know how he's spelling this. Well, <laughs> I really want to insult some Italians later. Day glow? Like, no. 
I would totally go on a day glow cruise. It's like by really the way. neon. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just, like midnight bowling, but on the whole cruise ship. Or you're, it's really offensive because you call them Delgo. It's like I am oh, not. Oh, no, I am more profitable than that. <laughs> Violet and Judy see Dora Lee come out of the office with the scarf, and Violet doesn't seem remotely surprised by it. She's just like, "Yep, whatever. That sounds like what he would do. What a jerk." Uh, she takes Judy to the copy room and teaches her how to use this Xerox machine. She gets a very rudimentary lesson on how it functions, and then she just walks out of the room and abandons Judy with this thing. Predictably, it goes haywire and continues spitting out hundreds of pages faster than Judy can deal with them. Well, also, pages are coming out in different colors. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know, at, when they first start coming out in different colors, she doesn't seem to care. I was like, is that how they're supposed to come out? Yeah. I don't know that she knows either. <laughs> but she hits a few buttons on the printer and it's suddenly throwing them out like there's a leaf blower behind it just yeah. blasting these papers in her face. But, but I like when the like the the separator trays just start filling up. Yeah. yeah. For collating on the side. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, this is this is pretty funny. Mr. Hart stumbles upon this mess and reprimands her very harshly for not operating the machine properly. He shows her how easy it is to turn off and basically calls her stupid for not knowing how to work it. He tells her to clean up this mess or she's going to get fired on her first day. And as he leaves, she starts crying in the office while she collects all the pages. We see Judy arriving home from work to find her husband, or soon-to-be ex-husband, uh, standing at the door. And for a moment, she's excited to see him, but he turns around to hand her an envelope full of divorce papers. And she agrees to sign them and present them to her lawyer. She tells him about the new job and he tells her, eh, I have to go. My girlfriend's waiting in the car. We cut to Judy's alarm going off the next day, and then her clocking in at work. As everybody gets their day started, Judy sees coworker Margaret drinking out of a flask from her locker. I love this character. She's great. <laughs> Medicinal purposes. We see Violet receive and deal with a number of calls on the phone rapid fire. One of the calls seems to be from her kids yeah. calling in because they're fighting at home about something over sandwiches or something like that. But she's able to handle the fight between her children capably from her desk. Dora Lee asks Judy if she'll join her for lunch and Judy seems reticent either because she's on thin ice with this job or she's still intimidated by Dora Lee's boobs or because she thinks that this is the boss's girlfriend and that's just weird. It makes her uncomfortable. We cut to Dora Lee at home that night, and she's telling her husband how sad she is that no one at work will hang out with her, even though she's so nice to everybody. Mr. Hart bugs Violet to make him another coffee, and we see her in the break room mixing in the Skinny and Sweet before delivering it. Skinny and Sweet here is the artificial sweetener she's using in the coffee. Judy seems to be getting the hang of the Xerox machine. In Mr. Hart's office, Violet asks him if he's looked at her report on color coding and how it could make the office up to 20% more efficient. He doesn't seem interested in discussing this at all. He's worried it's too much work. Roz encounters Violet again and asks if she got the memo about union busting in the office, and Violet finds a way to say that she read it or she didn't read it with the same words. She says, I did, Roz. I tore right through it. I read it really quickly or I just threw it away without reading mm -hmm. it. The two of them bump into Mr. Hart and Mr. Hinkle, another higher up. Apparently, Mr. Hart has just pitched him the color coding and the possibility of efficiency benefits. Mr. Hart is being given credit for the research and initiative he's taken, even though he stole it from Violet, and he doesn't even seem particularly embarrassed to be doing this in front yeah. of her. We cut to Violet at home, installing a garage door opener with her son. He's not helping her anything. She's doing it by herself, but he's here. Josh tells her that she's too high strung, and he's going to roll her a joint. 
but she reprimands him for talking about this and eventually accepts the joint because she does need it. Just slip it in my purse. We cut back to Mr. Hart's office, where Violet is learning that she's been passed over for another promotion, this time in favor of Bob Enright, who she also trained. When she holds his feet to the fire, Franklin admits that he promoted this guy because he's a man, and in his opinion, the clients prefer working with men when it comes to figures. Violet tears into him for making this decision based on his perceived understanding of the client's prejudice. Spare me the women's lib crap, okay? I know how you feel, and I understand. You understand zilch. Hart falls back into his chair, which collapses again, and he pages Dora Lee to come fix it. Violet demands Mr. Hart stop referring to her as his girl. I'm not your girl, and I'm not your wife. I'm not even your mistress. And as she says this part, she points at Dora Lee, who seems completely confused at the comment. It turns out that Hart has been lying to the office that he and Dora Lee are engaged in an affair, and she's been kept completely out of the loop somehow. She now knows why nobody will hang out with her. Violet stops by her desk to grab a few things angrily and then walk out, and Margaret the drunk asks where she's going, and she says, to get drunk. At a girl. <laughs> In Hart's office, Dora Lee is chasing him around, shouting at him for having sullied her good name. Her lecture climaxes with a threat of violence. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Dora Lee also leaves for a drink, and again, Margaret encourages her from her desk. Atta girl. <laughs> Roz steps into Mr. Hart's office to report a serious infraction. She was just in the restroom and overheard Maria Delgado sharing her salary with another employee and then guessing at Mr. Hart's and Roz's. Technically speaking, it's illegal to fire someone for sharing their salary, but that law might vary from state to state, and it might have been different in 1980. I don't know. Either way, Mr. Hart orders her fired here, and we cut right to Judy being shocked about it. Fire the bitch! Maria packs her bags and tells Judy that she needed to spend more time with her kids anyway. Judy thinks that this is just terrible and demands they take action. Margaret suggests a revolt, and Judy says she has to talk to Violet about this, when Margaret points out, well, she's at the bar getting drunk. And so Judy's like, all right, well, I'm going to the bar too. And she gets a third atta girl from <laughs> Margaret. Atta girl. Out at Charlie's bar, the three women sit next to each other, sipping their drinks. They agree this man is a monster and their situation seems largely hopeless, especially since in 1980, things are the same everywhere. It doesn't help to go to another company. Violet finds the joint in her purse and suggests they split it, but Judy seems intimidated, and Dora Lee says they should take it back to her house because her husband's out, and they'll have the house to themselves for an old-fashioned pot party. The same could be said, though, of Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda's character, is that... The husband's not around? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so any, any one of yeah, their there's homes... There's no husbands at any of these homes. I yeah. guess one of them at least has children at it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and who doesn't want to smoke around the and kids? The, and the other, the other one. She but wants... one of the children rolled the joint That's for fair. them. That's yeah. fair. That there, is there's fair. actually more marijuana at that house. Yeah, let's go to my place. I've got more. <laughs> Before they leave, Judy mentions that marijuana has never really worked for her. And of course, we cut immediately to her cracking up in Dora Lee's living room. Near future president Ronald Reagan specifically cited this scene as the worst part of the movie. He said it would have been fine if they'd just been drunk. But because they were smoking marijuana, they were providing a bad example for younger viewers. Because it's totally cool <laughs> if younger viewers drink alcohol, but not if they smoke marijuana. The three of them seem very heavily intoxicated by this joint. And then Dora Lee pulls a gun out of her purse. And I got worried about where this scene was going. <laughs> 
Have you not seen this before? No, I've seen it, but oh. like 15 years ago is the last time I saw it. So I was like, I forget what happens. Does she murder Jane Fonda in the middle? <laughs> Dora Lee tells the story of the only time she's had to use this gun. And apparently she accidentally shot a hole in her purse trying to defend herself. The three of them enter a laughing fit when suddenly Judy is describing a fantasy she just envisioned of the entire office hunting Mr. Hart down like a wild animal. This vision is based on the fact that Mr. Hart has animal heads mounted in his office. Uh, but just as she starts to describe the scene, we do this awesome quick zoom out of her face mm-hmm. through these crazy opticals. And then we fade into a man leading hunting dogs through the office building. But it's like thick with fog. It's a really cool transition. And I feel like we haven't seen anything like this in the 80s so far. Yeah. Like the closest we got was maybe Xanadu. Xanadu yeah. Um, but aside from that, this is the coolest scene transition in any movie that we've discovered. Um that's right we discovered this film we christopher columbus this movie it's a little film you may have heard of second highest grossing film of the year we discovered it the entire office is carrying torches and weapons and mr hart is sweating and crawling on his hands and knees to evade them the color is desaturated but not totally black and white and he goes to hide in his office but finds judy with a shotgun at his desk he tells her he doesn't know what's going on and that he's not that bad a guy And she says, You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. Who doesn't? Is that any reason to kill me? She steps around his desk and then points her shotgun at him. He ducks out of the room just in time for her to miss, but hit the window next to his office door. She continues firing through the office like Elliot Loudermilk, destroying (laughs) printers and typewriters. Mr. Hart puts a wastebasket over his head for some reason and starts running back and forth across the office but every time something explodes in front of him he turns around to run the other way it looks like a parlor game he just keeps changing directions it's actually very funny and uh eventually she knocks the wastebasket off his head with a shot and chases him into the ladies room where he's standing on a toilet and then she shoots him there and we cut to his head mounted on his office wall right uh it's important to point out that something from each of these fantasies happen right a couple things from from each of these fantasies when we cut back to dora lee's house the three of them are all eating food now they just like empty the refrigerator onto the kitchen table and they're all eating different things violet is me because she's just eating an entire jar of olives with pimentos which is my favorite every time snack (laughs) they ask dora lee what her fantasy is with regard to payback against mr hart and i feel like hers is the worst one because she's just doing what mr hart wants her to do yeah but uh at, at least the power dynamic is switched so that's what's making him uncomfortable and, and here Devney coleman's performance especially in yes. Dora Lee's, yes. where he's so like awkward and shy yeah. about oh, what's going on i'm a married man <laughs> uh but she thinks that she'd like to give him a taste of his own medicine and we cut to this western motif and again we get this really cool like animated lasso transition yeah to wipe the the shot clean pulls the corner down out. Yeah. yeah and then she's she's riding a horse up to the stage like it looks i think they're literally projecting mm-hmm. so they shot her in a field on a horse and then they projected the footage of her on the horse on a screen behind the window of of huh. his desk so that it looks like it's all one shot all one piece but it's kind of like how the like mandalorian style yeah, yeah, yeah. um but uh but she rides up to it and then she comes in through like these saloon style doors that are now suddenly on the side right, of his right. office. And uh, and again, all the scene transitions are animated lassos. We get like a split screen of a lasso to show him at the desk outside because now he's her secretary. And uh, 
when Hart enters, she starts commenting on his body, and he's getting more and more uncomfortable about it. Boy, that's great cologne you're wearing, Frank. Oh, thank you. That stuff's turning me on. What's that called? Stud. Stud! She fishes a gift out of her desk and gives it to him, and it's a small red scarf, which he ties around his neck. And then she buries his face in her boobs and tries to kiss him forcibly before he walks right out of her office. And then she follows him with a lasso and hogties him. Suddenly she's roasting him on a spit outside, <laughs> like by a covered wagon in a campground. And the lasso transition brings us back to reality. And it's Violet's turn. And now we get this Disney-esque movie where Violet is dressed like Snow White. And we have these look-alike characters that are just different enough to not get sued. For, Animated like, over yeah. the live action. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it's like a Bambi-ish character and Robin Hood-ish animated characters. She's preparing coffee for her boss and winks to the animated bird that follows her around before dumping a magical ring full of powder into the coffee. This is our second movie in a row where people have had their drinks spiked with something in a fantasy sequence. Although the last one, the entire movie was fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) A skull and crossbones made of steam rises from this coffee and... A bird gives her a spoon to mix the drink, but when she lifts the spoon out, it's completely eaten away as though by acid, a joke we last saw in The Private Eyes earlier this year. (laughs) She gives Mr. Hart his coffee, and he sips it right away, and suddenly steam is shooting out of his ears, and his head is spinning 360 degrees on his neck. Violet moves to open the window behind him and then cranks his chair up in the air like a barber chair Mm -hmm. and then launches him out of the window several stories below into traffic. So the drink was completely unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it didn't actually do anything to him. But again, I like that it, it mimics the the things that happen, that happen. to him yep. because of, you know, it's the chair that does the act and not the drink right. that does the mm-hmm. act later. Yep. We see her and Judy and Dora Lee in fantasy princess garb toasting each other with goblets and suddenly Margaret as like a dungeon dweller yeah. gets a phone call at this dusty desk and suddenly all the chains break off of her magically and the chains break off all the other prisoners and our three princesses stand on a balcony of a matte painted castle our second consecutive film with a matte painted castle (laughs) and uh the next day in the office hart asks violet to make some coffee and she does it very angrily a coworker points out that they're out of skinny and sweet the artificial sweetener she uses and violet claims to have already bought some more We see her pull out a yellow box from her locker and finish mixing the coffee. She steps out of the break room with his coffee and the camera pans down to reveal that though the box was similar and the font was similar, this is no longer artificial sweetener, but rat poison. So it is like artificial sweetener. (laughs) Well, it's not sweetener. So it's not artificial sweetener. You don't know how that rat poison tastes. It could be very sweet. That's true because the more delicious something is, the worse it is for you. So poison must be fucking divine. (laughs) Well, you need the rats to eat it. It can't taste bad. Otherwise, the rats won't eat it. When she drops off the coffee at his desk, he tells her to be sure that anytime something comes from Ajax's warehouse, that it needs to be delivered directly to him and nobody else. Mr. Hart tells whoever's on the phone not to call this number again, meaning this whole Ajax business seems really illegal. Yeah. He moves to take a sip of the coffee, but his chair falls backward again, and he's knocked unconscious. He doesn't even get the cup to his mouth. He literally just falls over. Dora Lee enters and is unable to rouse him before we cut to an ambulance, and she's riding in the cab. Violet gets back to the office later, and only now is she learning that he's been taken away in an ambulance. 
Judy says that something happened, but she doesn't know what. And Violet moves to empty her locker for the end of the day and finds the box of rat poison on the counter and realizes what probably happened. She rushes to Hart's office and finds Roz on the floor cleaning the mess. Roz tells her that he was drinking his coffee and fell when he hit his head on the credenza. But we never really see that happen. It looks like the chair just falls over. Yeah. There's not even a sound to indicate he hit it on the desk. So I really like right after um, she sees Roz in the office and she's terribly upset because of the the rat poison. And, but Roz misconstrues it as just being upset in general yeah. over it's like, oh, the, I know how, you feel. how the boss, you know, is, is in, injured in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. She's like, I know how you feel. Oh, my God. It's so sad, isn't it? Violet races out of the office carrying the box of rat poison and reveals to Judy what she's done. The two race off to the hospital together. We see Dora Lee bringing Hart in and starting to fill out paperwork. Hart wakes up with a doctor and refuses all the tests they're trying to offer him, not wanting to be overcharged for his stay. Although but he's probably already got a big ambulance bill. Yeah, and also being knocked out and being unconscious for long periods of time is really bad. Yeah, you got to do a test to make sure all of your brain still works. Violet and Judy get to the hospital and tell Dora Lee what happened. She takes it better than you'd expect, but maybe that's just because this is her first film. Violet put rat poison in Hart's coffee. I didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident. You mean that's why? It looks just like skinny and sweet. Good grief. That's her reaction to finding out her, her boss has been poisoned to death. Dora Lee leads them to the room where... They dragged Hart, but there's a detective waiting outside Hart's room, which he happens to be sharing with a patient who just died. Violet assumes the detective is here because they already know what caused all this. The doctor exits the room and announces the patient's death by poison to the detective, and Violet collapses. The three women try to calm her down, but lose track of her when they step away to reach a lawyer by phone to like work up a defense. Now, I want to I wanna put a pause here. Uh, would you say that this is the act one break? Uh, I would say the, the act one break is the poisoning. The poisoning itself? Yes. Okay. Why, why do you ask? Well, because it, because this felt like the, like a, like a big changeover. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this occurs almost an hour into the movie. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And so I was like, I, my notice here is like act one seems to end very late. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the the whole second part of the movie goes very quickly. Right, um, and I just thought that was that's just an interesting as far as like storytelling because I don't feel that it was wasn't working. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I certainly felt like things were moving quite along, uh, but when I was trying to just like I, I sometimes stop and think about things as a story, and I was like, this seems like to be like the the first major change. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like a typical three act structure. Violet notices a doctor wheeling a corpse out of Hart's room covered in a blanket, and when the doctor is distracted, she slips into a doctor coat and steals the body away from him as a noisy crowd enters the hospital. She bumps into a fellow hospital employee and lies her way out of this conversation by saying, oh, I'm a doctor and I work in the morgue downstairs, and why am I even talking to you? Yeah. Because I'm more important than you are. Judy and Dora Lee notice her pushing a body around the hospital and start following her to the car where she dumps this corpse into her trunk and the girls all meet her there, and they're already driving away before Violet admits, yeah, I have the body. I put it in the trunk of this car, mm-hmm. so you're all accomplices now. They try to talk her into returning it, but Dora Lee thinks, ah, we're all guaranteed jail time already anyway. It's too late. They almost hit a van and then swerve into a dumpster, but the car is disabled in the accident. Dora Lee moves to the trunk to get a tire iron from under the body and then realizes that it's the wrong one. 
She brings this to Judy and Violet's attention, and Violet thinks they can just take it back to the hospital, but they quickly realize that's not an option. We can't just go, oh, hey, we took the wrong body, take this one back. I would love to see this whole movie unfold from another angle where three women intentionally poison their boss, but they get away with it because three unrelated women stole his body from the hospital <laughs> by mistake <laughs> before the autopsy could happen. In this movie, on their way back to the hospital, the women are pulled over by a cop who tells them that they're having a taillight issue and it's likely a short in the wiring in the trunk. Probably just a defective wire or something. You want to take a look? Do we want to take a look? He offers to check it, and they pretend that they are headed to the hospital for an emergency, but they can't keep their story straight. I, I like how Lily Tomlin repeats everything that the police officer says yes. to them, like he wants to check out the trunk, <laughs> like we yeah. need to have a discussion. Yeah, this is something we, we need to figure out here live. Which one of you is sick? I am. She is. They're both sick. Violet tells him they ate rat poison and need to be hospitalized immediately. He offers them an escort, but she races off without him. At the hospital, Doralee and Judy move the body to a wheelchair and stash it in a bathroom somewhere in the hospital. Then they move to investigate and figure out where Frank ended up here. The orderlies don't seem especially surprised when they find the body. Hey, Vera, we got another stiff in the jaw. The next morning, Mr. Hurt walks through the office like nothing happened, and the three women are shocked to see him alive. They convene in a bathroom to needlessly recap yesterday's events. I tell you, I did put the poison in the coffee. I know it. Well, he absolutely did not drink it, Violet. I mean, how could we be so stupid? Oh, did anybody think to look under the stall? Yes, stars? yes, and there's nobody there. After they leave the bathroom, we float over the stall divider to see Roz with her legs up, scribbling the details of the conversation on a length of toilet paper. But then, when she's sharing the information with Frank, it's all printed out, so she brought it back she, to her she desk she and transcribed it. Of course she did. Because yeah. she didn't she want does. to bring the shit-stained toilet paper. But <laughs> it reminds me of uh, in the high cost of living when they're like three women needlessly relaying their entire plot yeah. to, into a There's a lot recorder. of that in this movie, actually. <laughs> Uh, also, I like, though, when Roz is going over the notes, it's like, is this accurate? It's like, most of it, my notes were a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah. I, I also, um, it's funny that, uh, speaking of that, the tape recorder scene in the How to Beat the High Cost of Living, that it never comes back right? to play. But it's like, why did they bother showing them record the entire yeah. plan? Yeah. Also with Dabney Coleman. That's right. But he's nicer in that one. Kind of. Yeah, he still tries to, like sex a lady to get out of a ticket yeah a couple times frank calls dora lee into his office and he tells her hey you're coming over to my house tonight and she's like no it's friday i don't work late on friday and and uh and then he informs her that he knows everything that happened yesterday and that he's blackmailing her to sleep with him interesting though Interestingly, though, he has more info on what happened than they even divulged in the bathroom because nobody ever said rat poison in the conversation. They just said, I put the poison in the coffee and she told Dabney that it was rat poison. Put the poison in the tea. Put the poison in the tea. Don't drink the tea. She tries to explain it was a mistake, but Hart promises to forget any of it happened in exchange for sex. Eventually, Dora Lee is pushed beyond her patience and threatens to destroy the phones that he plans to use to call the police. He's laughing while she hogties him with the phone cord until he realizes he can't break out of it. And then he's like, oh, oh shit, this is, yeah. this is a problem. Please stop, stop. Uh, I like that she has those practical skills. Yeah, yeah. 
but again it's something that she did in her fantasy was the hog tying him on the ground and she's doing it here she stuffs a scarf in his mouth and as she leaves the office she crashes into roz and makes up a crappy excuse oh he's tied up at the moment huh Roz really doesn't seem like she caught these girls trying to murder her boss yesterday. Yeah, she's very forgiving about everything regarding yeah. going forward. Like, she's like, oh, you can't have flowers on your desk, but I now know that I work with three attempted murderers, and I'm just going to treat them like regular coworkers anyway. It's weird that she believes anything they say moving forward and never gets remotely suspicious of the sudden absence of the boss that they tried to kill earlier. Doralee tells Judy what happened and then leaves to tell Violet. Judy enters the office where Hart begs her to let him loose because he says that he's actually in physical pain here. And once she unties him, he goes for the door. But Judy grabs Doralee's gun to threaten him and fires a couple rounds into the window by his door, which is exactly what happened in her mm -hmm. fantasy. But I feel like that's also uh, in all these office shooting movies, you have to have a glass wall or door because yeah, yeah. otherwise there's no way to show that the bullet hit anything without squibbing the walls of this place. So it's cheaper to replace a window than a wall. But 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 this is a set. So yeah. it seems like it would have been roughly built, the same. Yeah, it was built to be destroyed. Yeah, but it's still cheaper to replace the window than the wall if you're going to keep shooting in here. Film-wise, not gun-wise. <laughs> I, I also like her, her shooting method of just wincing and closing her eyes as yeah. she pulls the trigger randomly. Firing not only through this window, but into a probably 40 foot long floor mm -hmm. of an office building with a bunch of people in it still but as she's firing this weapon doralee and violet arrive and shout at her to put the gun down so now all three of them have had a chance to act out their fantasies in live action together they drive him to his empty house because his wife is still on a four-week day glow cruise <laughs> tied up at home Hart tells them they will all go to prison for 20 years when this gets out in the kitchen, the three formulate a plan to blackmail him to keep him from talking. In the morning, Violet finds an account book for Ajax Warehouse, and they head to the building to investigate. Violet discovers from peeking in a high window that the warehouse is totally empty, and they conclude that Hart has sold imaginary consolidated products to Ajax and then pocketed the money without delivering the product. I'm not clear where this money comes from in this scam or really how any of this works. Yeah. I guess he was ordering supplies and equipment for the office more than he needed and and moving some of that supplies and equipment into that warehouse well, where he then sold it. See, I, I, and maybe I'm just not thinking of this scam right. I figured he had falsified those invoices and so he was saying, hey, we're buying all this stuff and then he didn't actually buy anything and he just took the money. So is it like Brubaker? where you're buying and insuring all this farm equipment that doesn't exist? Or is he just like laundering money by someone gives him money and then he says, here's a product, but he doesn't give them any product. I, I don't I don't get what the plot is. I don't know why an empty warehouse is a sign of anything. Well, because he was talking to someone on the phone right. saying that I'll give you the money when I'm ready. So right. he was talking about giving somebody else money. Yeah, but I don't, I don't yeah, we don't we don't flesh this out enough to really understand the scam. But Violet seems convinced by the empty warehouse that that's what's going on. Also they establish that his wife is already rich. Right, so he doesn't need to do this. Yeah. It's like in Birthday, the MacGyver episode, 
where his wife already had this really successful business. Mm -hmm. But the guy was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kidnap people for ransom. Yeah. But you have a nice house. Everything's wonderful. Hart denies any wrongdoing, but Violet tells him she will order the invoices from corporate to prove it. They head to a sporting goods store to find a better means of confining Mr. Hart in his home. They buy dog collars, chains, and this weird, like, onesie life jacket or something. Mm -hmm. We cut right to Mr. Hart wearing it all, and it does look like some weird SNM uh, outfit. And Lily Tomlin also put her recent garage door installation skills to use. Yes. Mr. Hart points out that the office obviously can't function without him around. And we cut right to a montage of Judy, Doralee, and Violet capably filling in for their boss. Roz calls Doralee repeatedly in search of her boss, the known target of a recent assassination attempt, and she never once considers that the attempted murderers in the office might have something to do with his mysterious disappearance. Back at home, Hart starts disassembling furniture to plot his escape. He breaks a bar off of a tray table, intending to beat Doralee unconscious when she delivers his lunch, but she catches him in a mirror on the way to her and she taps the garage door button to retract this tether connecting mm-hmm. him to the ceiling and it lifts him several feet off the ground we get another scene in the office where the three murderers take turns telling Roz that they just saw mr hart and she's not able to make the connection about the only people who are able to see mr hart back in the house they decide they need to come up with a better excuse to send Roz away for a long period of time because distracting her is taking up too much of their work day They consider a vacation, but that's only two weeks and they need more time because Violet just got word from corporate that they're digitizing all their records and they won't be able to send those Ajax invoices for four to six weeks. Judy suggests sending her to the Aspen Foreign Language Center to learn French and they'll just tell her that that's so she can be an executive liaison for some new branch of the company. They worry for a moment that she wouldn't go, but we cut right to her on a plane because anything that heart asks her to do she's gonna do now i'm assuming they mean aspen someplace warm a place where the beer flows like wine where beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of capistrano i'm talking about a little place called aspen but she's getting on the plane that they show is like a massive like 747 yeah well that plane also is that's the TWA Flight 800 that crashed. Like, that's the same plane that crashed. Really? Yeah. Obviously, it's not, like, it wasn't that flight. Right, right, not right. not watching stock footage from earlier that day, but that was the flight that, that crashed. It was a, it was a very big, uh, well-publicized crash. Now, Roz is out of town for a few weeks, and Mrs. Hart is still out for a few more weeks, and they should have the place to themselves. Mrs. Hart being on vacation reminds Dora Lee that she feels bad for her and she sets about ordering flowers for her in Tahiti or wherever she is. While she's doing this, Violet realizes that she can make a lot of changes around the office now that Mr. Hart's out of the way. With Roz gone, it will be less of a hassle and suddenly they're allowing people to keep flowers on their desks. We get a montage of people decorating their personal areas with photos and flowers and tchotchkes. Violet expands on this plan by rolling out sweeping new policies like general salary increases and a daycare center on site, part-time work. We see the employee that was fired for discussing salaries has been invited back. Because she needed time with her children, she's been offered a job share position and trades places with another employee halfway through the day. 
All throughout the office transformation, we see clips of Earl Bowen as Perkins mm-hmm. taking notes on the changes they've instituted, but this never pays off at all. Well, it, it does a little bit um, because he reports to uh, the chairman of the board about these new changes. Right, but it, they do it like it's nefarious, like they're going to oh, get yeah, in trouble yeah, yeah. for what they're doing. No, of course. And really what he's doing is taking notes and, and noting they're doing a really good job over here. But, but I love Earl Bowen period yeah also i love the way he he comes around a corner and, peeks and, like, at them. and then mm, writes in his note and then peeks back yeah <laughs> during one of her daily lunch deliveries dora lee accidentally leaves a nail file behind and mr hart uses it to start cutting through his bindings we see judy doing dishes and getting into her pajamas at the house that night because she's in charge of the night shift basically mm-hmm. watching him and while she's doing this a man is sneaking around the house from outside peeking in the windows at her when she finally notices him it's dick her ex-husband i think he's an ex now we never saw paperwork get filed but he wants to know what's going on well he delivered paperwork though yeah but she didn't deliver it so it's not official until everybody's signed on she tells him that she's house sitting for a friend and he says oh well i've been casing this place for a week to make sure you're alone she agrees to make him a single cup of coffee but then he has to leave Dick admits that his girlfriend left him after a week and also that he followed Judy here from her workplace. So he's like a mega creeper. Yeah. Upstairs, Mr. Hart finally breaks through his chains and accidentally knocks over a lamp. They hear the noise downstairs and Judy moves to investigate. Her ex-husband tries to follow her. Judy catches Hart in the middle of his escape and they struggle together for a moment until she pushes the garage door button to reel him up to the ceiling. Her husband walks in on this after listening to them fight for several minutes. He assumes she's into bondage now, and she admits that this is actually her boss. She has stuffed a gag in his mouth just before her husband arrived so that Mr. Hart can't dispute her side of the story. Her ex asks if this is what she's into now. So, that's what you're into now. Bondage. What's that? Bondage, S&M, sex games. That's right. (laughs) Sex games. Look, if I want to do sex games or (laughs) M&Ms... Yeah. He seems very upset to learn that she's having an affair with her boss, but she really isn't having an affair. He's the one having an affair because she's a divorced single woman. Right. He tells her that this isn't her, and she responds with a tirade. Don't you tell me what I can or can't do. Those days are over. And if I want to have, have an affair or, or play, play sex games or do M&Ms, you can't stop me. M&Ms? As a matter of fact, I smoke pot. I can see what that kind of living has done to you. Here he reveals that he came to win her back and she laughs that off like the terrible idea that it is. Violet informs the other girls that there are only three days until the invoices arrive. That's how much time has passed. Almost four weeks that they've been doing this. Right. Time enough for Dabney Coleman to enjoy watching Days of Our Lives. (laughs) Back at the Hart estate, Mrs. Hart is being dropped off early by a cab. She comes home and finds Frank in his bizarre suit of bindings and asks what he's been up to. We cut right to her on a balcony somewhere, calling Dora Lee to thank her for the flowers. At first, Dora Lee tries to lie and say, oh, those aren't for me, but Mrs. Hart reveals that she spoke with Frank and knows that he didn't order them. It seems weird that he wouldn't just take credit for that delivery, but he doesn't. Dora Lee is more concerned that she's spoken with Frank and asks what else she knows. She lets Dora Lee know that she's been home for three days from her vacation and that she found Frank doing some weird form of exercise. He sent her away to a hotel where she is now. Dora Lee hangs up on Mrs. Hart to relay this news immediately. When Violet gets the news, she is understandably shaken because now they have three days unaccounted for where Frank may have been able to move things around and do some shady business dealings. 
Judy says they're being ridiculous because she's at the house now and just fed him lunch. He seems totally confined still. Dora Lee says, get my gun and keep it trained on him until I get there. Violet rushes to Ajax's warehouse and learns to her dismay that it's being filled up with equipment to cover all of his tracks. Mm -hmm. So everything he pretended to buy is somehow in here now. Unless he spent all of the money that he made, I don't know how he could do that. Well, and has exact records, which I w- would hope that Lily Tomlin took. Yeah. So he has to know exactly what has to go back into this warehouse. By the time Dora Lee gets to the house, Mr. Hart has the gun and he's holding Judy hostage. He marches Judy and Dora Lee into the office. I don't know why he's bothering to go here. He could have called the police from home. Yeah. But he but brought I, them to the office to call the police. But I guess he needs Violet. And, oh, okay. Like he needs all three of them. Well, if they i'm assuming they told her to go to the office they could just as easily have told her to go to his house Mm. but then we don't get the big reveal right as they enter the building he wonders out loud where the time clock went and they start to bring him up to speed on the changes they've made to the office we get a slow pan from his point of view of the entire office and it's no longer gray it's full of color and flowers and happy employees and a guy in a wheelchair i don't know if he was here before but Seems like something they would have pushed for, you know, employing people that are underrepresented in the workforce right. or something Although, like that. Although uh, the mailroom guy is still <laughs> pushing around the mailroom yep. cards. Yep, he didn't get to go anywhere. They inform him that all of this was authorized with just his signature. He's confused why anyone's here before 9 o'clock, and they inform him of their new flexible hours policy where people can pick and choose the spans of time that they will work out of the office. Some people are in early, some people stay late. Sir, it's working very nicely. Mm-hmm. A lot less absenteeism. People really like it. Oh, do they? Well, I hate it. What I say goes. Violet meets them all in the office and drops the invoices on Frank's desk. Though she's quick to point out that they're worthless now because Frank has been filling the warehouse since he's been free. The Henry Jones character, I'm forgetting his name, uh, gets a phone call that the chairman of the board is arriving. He phones down to Frank's office to give him a heads up as to the visit. Apparently, Russell Tinsworthy... The chairman of the board is here to meet specifically with Mr. Hart. Hart has a mini panic attack because, like Violet, he's probably never met the man or even seen him. He comes strolling through the office like a corporate Colonel Sanders with a full white suit and hat and a narrow tie with a white Van Dyke beard. He's quick to shake Frank's hand and hands off a bottle of fine champagne. Evidently, he's here because Hart's division has shown a 20% increase in efficiency over the past six weeks, something that he does for every division that manages this feat. He always visits, I guess. Well, I wonder, though, if this is because of all these changes or just her color-coding system. Yeah, it could be. (laughs) Everything else is just barely paying for itself. Yeah, Yeah, because the color-coding system on its own was supposed to increase it by 20%. Yeah, exactly. He says he wants to meet the man who accomplished it, and Hart is quick to take credit. It's enough to make you crazy if you let it. Frank wants to lie and agree with Tinsworthy about how great the office is now, but he can't even manage that much. I, I find it very... I, I don't know, the, the people seem to like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best he could do. Tinsworthy asks how the whole job-sharing program has been working, and because he obviously has no idea, he's forced to hand off the details to Violet. Mr. Hart surprisingly does go far enough to admit that Violet is basically his right arm around here and in charge of a lot of getting things done. Violet gives them a basic understanding of the job share program. Two employees split a shift who are not available to work full time. Tinsworthy is also impressed to hear about the daycare center, something they hadn't even mentioned to Mr. Hart yet, and he sounds totally sidelined by it. Right. Tinsworthy tells a story about his time in the armed forces, where he was placed in charge of setting up daycares at the defense centers. 
Luckily for Violet, this guy seems to be some bizarre, super progressive CEO, because this could just as easily have gone the other way if this guy thought all of these things were a waste of money. Well, he does have one issue. What's that? That the equal pay for men and women. Oh, yeah. Violet offers to lead Tinsworthy to the daycare center. Margaret catches Mr. Hart as they're walking to the daycare, and he doesn't even recognize her because she's been taking advantage of their employee substance abuse rehabilitation program and gotten off the sauce. Hart half-acidly congratulates her, and Doralee says, Good to see you. Doesn't she look great? Hold this. Frank hands Doralee the champagne and then moves to follow Tinsworthy and Violet so that he's not missing out on any of this conversation. I thought it might have been funnier if instead he'd handed the bottle to Margaret Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then Doralee took it away because she's obviously more sensitive (laughs) about it. Violet repeats Doralee's argument to Mr. Tinsworthy that the daycare center, job share, and flexible hours programs have all contributed to a decrease in absenteeism and likely an increase in overall output, though I'm not sure what at all this company makes or provides. We never really get any indication. Because of Frank's perceived ability to think outside the box, Tinsworthy pulls him aside to announce that he'll be transferring to a burgeoning Brazilian division. Hart seems resistant to commit to this transfer, and Tinsworthy reminds him of the importance of teamwork. Packed into the elevator, Mr. Hart learns that the trip will last two years, and he only accepts after Tinsworthy makes it clear that turning it down is the equivalent of resigning from this job. Violet, Judy, and Dora Lee pour three glasses of champagne in Mr. Hart's office, which I guess isn't Mr. Hart's office anymore, when Roz enters, shocked at them drinking in here. Holy merd. I feel like there's no universe where they can convince this character that they didn't murder Mr. Hart. Yeah. I like to think that it occurred to her while she was in Aspen and the three of them were being weird. And she's like, oh my God, I bet they killed him because they poisoned him the day before and it didn't work. And then I didn't even realize. And then she gets back and, and they're like, oh, he went to Brazil. He works at Brazil now. <laughs> we get our closing credits for each character with little epilogues. Violet Newstead was promoted to vice president in recognition of her ability to remain calm in a crisis. What crisis, though? The only people who knew about any crisis were not in a position to promote her. Well, and I, I think they're doing it to be funny, but it I feel like it undercuts the film because they're cutting this right to, they, they cut right to the footage of her acting crazy in yeah. a crisis yeah. of, of taking the body out of the hospital. So yeah. I'm like, I, I don't really... I, this she really, earned this job and you don't need to make a joke about how she got yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That really bothered me. Yeah. Judy Burnley fell in love and married the Xerox representative. What Xerox representative? We couldn't have shown this person once? This feels like a placeholder epilogue that they just never bothered to replace. Yeah. This one bothered me too. Yeah. I'm just yeah. like, I this whole movie, we're talking about how these are strong, independent women. She just finally realized she didn't want to take her husband back, even though she, he wanted her back. She finally latched onto a guy who can fix machines because women can't do that part. Yeah. And it's just like, come on. you Don't you want to, you know, now advance your career now that you have opportunities here? And instead, you're just like, oh, I'm going to quit this job and marry this dude. I think actually they just forgot to submit an epilogue for this character and they just let a pa at the title house decide how it would end and then dolly parton got to write her own epilogue yeah dora lee rhodes quit consolidated and became a country and western singer again this comes completely out of nowhere we don't even get like a stoned karaoke moment from these three Mm -hmm. and it seems like the screenwriter was not at all involved with this whole section this is this has producer fingerprints all over it (laughs) Because when when she's when Dorley's at home, it's her husband who's playing the guitar. Right. It should have it should have been her husband. And she doesn't in the even bath- sing along to it. Yeah, it should have been her husband in the bathroom and her strumming the guitar. Yeah. 
Like, just give us a hint that maybe she's dreaming of something else. Franklin Hart was abducted by a tribe of Amazons in the Brazilian jungle and was never heard from again. First of all, Amazons sounds wrong to me. A tribe of Amazons. Well, because uh, it's Wouldn't it be Amazon. like an Amazonian tribe? Well, I think I think the joke is that he is abducted by a bunch of women who live in the jungle, and that's why he was never heard from again. Maybe. Or you think they're talking about those Amazons? I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's like some kind of that that he would be captured by and enslaved I, by women. I feel like if that was the case, it would have said a tribe of Amazon women in the Brazilian jungle. But it just says a tribe of Amazons. It, it either way is not a funny joke. No, because why would he be in the jungle? Yeah, why would it, he it, just out in the middle it, of the like jungle? Brazil is is not a third world country. It's <laughs> but the way I read this epilogue is he was captured by like literal headhunters who cannibalized him. I, which I feel is, like that's what they're alluding to. Which yeah. is a crazy dark way to end. Like I get that he was an asshole, but really he got eaten by humans. That's that's what happened to that character. And then after his epilogue, we see a deleted scene of Frank sitting in a chair watching TV in his weird bondage suit. And when he tries to change the channel, he accidentally clicks the garage door opener button and gets lifted up out of his chair toward the ceiling. And that's the end of our film. Obviously, we have Dolly Parton's fantastic theme song playing over this whole end sequence. Writer-director Colin Higgins, he wrote Harold and Maude as his master's thesis at UCLA while working as a pool boy for a film producer. He was originally intended to direct that film, but when the studio was unsatisfied with his test footage, Hal Ashby was attached on the condition that Higgins gave his blessing and that he was allowed on set throughout production to learn as a director. He also negotiated Higgins a producer credit on that film. After that experience, he sold the script to Silver Streak, starring our stir-crazy leads, and was entrusted after that with the director's chair for his 78 screenplay Foul Play. That led to him writing and directing this, and later, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. In 85, he was working on a script called Washington Girls to reunite the leads of this film, but unfortunately passed away from an AIDS-related illness in 1988. I haven't checked all 158 of our previous titles, but this may be our first film directed by an openly gay man. Story and writer Patricia Resnick. She was a production assistant on Three Women, on which she is also apparently an uncredited screenwriter. She was a consulting producer on the final season of Mad Men and a writer and executive producer on Pamela Adlon's Better Things series. Cinematographer Reynaldo Villalobos, uh, did Urban Cowboy earlier this year. He also goes on to Risky Business, Blame It on Rio, Lucas, PCU, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, and six episodes of Breaking Bad. Editor Pembroke J. Herring, his first feature was Tora Tora Tora. He also did Foul Play, Little Darlings earlier this year with the same composer, Best Little Whorehouse, National Lampoon's Vacation, Johnny Dangerously, European Vacation, Out of Africa, and later handled two of my favorite Harold Ramis features as an editor on Groundhog Day and Multiplicity. I feel like those are both extremely difficult movies for an editor to do. Yeah. Because Groundhog Day, you're just doing the same scenes over and over again, and you just have to keep track of the timeline in your head. And then Multiplicity, you're shooting the same scene over and over again and, the, and stitching the actor together. 
Um, the music here was Charles Fox, aside from what I mentioned earlier. He also composed the Happy Days theme, which I don't think we've given him credit for yet this year. Jane Fonda was Judy Burnley. She's Bree Daniels in Clute and Sally Hyde in Coming Home, both of which she won Oscars for. She's Barbarella and Barbarella, a likely inspiration for Galaxina earlier this year, and she currently stars alongside Lily Tomlin on Netflix series Grace and Frankie. We'll see her next year in On Golden Pond, married to Dabney Coleman because she had such a good time working with him on this film, and Rollover next year. That was that heisty looking one with... Uh, okay. Was that Coburn or who was in that with her? I can't remember. There's a couple of heist ones that yeah. I'm kind of blurring together. Um, I like, though, that she was such a fan of Dabney's that she brought him onto the next movie. Yeah. It, it makes me think that... And usually that's the case. The people who play assholes the best are actually really nice and they just have an understanding of how assholes work. Mm -hmm. um, Lily Tomlin was Violet Newstead. We'll see her early next year for The Incredible Shrinking Woman. She was Edwina Cutwater in All of Me. She was brought on as the president's secretary on the west wing after the previous secretary character miss landingham was killed by a drunk driver tomlin was vivian in i heart huckabees a film almost completely overshadowed by director david o russell's leaked on-set antics mm -hmm. including several minutes of berating tomlin like a child for three fucking years not to have some fucking cut yell at me in front of the fucking crew when i'm trying to fucking help you bitch figure it out yourself Shortly before the film was released, I met her at an In-N-Out here in Camarillo, <laughs> and she was headed home from an event at UCSB. She was very kind. She brought a limousine to the In-N-Out, <laughs> and I was already impressed by whoever brought a, a limousine to In-N-Out, and then Lily Tomlin got out of it. I was like, oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Had to be someone that cool. But uh, she was very nice. I spoke with her in line. Dolly Parton played Doralee Rhodes. Amazingly, this was her first feature film credit. She followed it with Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Rhinestone, and Steel Magnolias. She performs the theme songs for all but Steel Magnolias in the films that she appears in. She wrote a theme song for Steel Magnolias that was not accepted. It's It was weird to me. So I, I looked up how old she was, and I, she's 34 in this movie. I was going to say, now? Jesus. No, no, no. I looked up how old she was when she yeah. played this part, and I just, like... She's already so accomplished and amazing. I know. And I'm just yeah. like, God, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> yeah. She's also obviously a hugely famous singer-songwriter and by all accounts, an incredibly sweet person. Like she she runs a program oh, that's like books. A, a, the yeah. books. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like the Dolly Library or whatever. And she mails books yeah. for free She'll to kids who need books. send your kids books. She's just the sweetest little lady. And she's also EGOT nominated, but she has only won the Grammys so mm. far. Dabney Coleman played Franklin Hart Jr. We've seen him already this year in Nothing Personal, How to Beat the High Cost of Living, and Melvin and Howard. He was almost in Private Benjamin, but uh, didn't take that role. I think this one is the better movie. Yeah, um, this is. This, I think of all, so many of the films that he's done, this is probably in, mo in most people's memory. Yes, I think this is definitely his best best known performance. Uh, later, he'll show up in Cloak and Dagger, Man with One Red Shoe, War Games, and Clifford. Tomlin, Parton, and Coleman all appeared in the 1993 Beverly Hillbillies. Sterling Hayden played Tinsworthy. He's Roger Wade in The Long Goodbye. He's General Jack T. Ripper in Dr. Strangelove and Captain McCluskey in The Godfather. We'll see him next year in Gas. Gregory Peck oh, and Charlton... Sorry. Uh, did you mention Zero Hour? 
Oh, no. Is he in Zero Hour? He's in Zero Hour. Oh, that's funny. And, so and he's co- in the movie that was totally ripped off as Airplane. Yes. <laughs> which which character? Is he one of the pilots or something? Uh, hold on. I got to bring him up. Or the Robert Stack character, maybe. Uh, it says Captain Captain Martin Trevelyan. Okay. So it, it could be one of the pilots, and it could also be... Because I think Robert Stack's character in Airplane was a retired captain. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's the one who set off all the problems in Doctor Strange Love. Mm. He's the one who like orders all the bombers to attack each other because he thinks that fluoride is in the water and it's, yeah, well, he's Jack D. Ripper. Yeah, yeah, so he's totally insane. Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston were both offered this role before Sterling Hayden and turned it down. Elizabeth Wilson plays Roz. She was Mrs. Braddock, the mother of Ben Braddock in The Graduate. She's Dorothy Van Doren in the quiz show, or just quiz show. Uh, she's Abigail Craven, a.k.a. Dr. Greta Pinderschloss in The Adams Family, the one who's trying to convince <laughs> uh, Uncle Fester to steal all their money. And she's also Helen Carter in The Birds. We saw her earlier this year as the mother of a dead soldier in our Patreon review of Catch-22. So not it, it was this year in 2020, but the movie came out in 1970. She will also appear with Lily Tomlin next year in The Incredible Shrinking Woman as Dr. Ruth Ruth. Henry Jones, not Indiana Jones or his father, but Henry Jones, the actor, played Hinkle. He was the coroner in Vertigo. He's Leroy in The Bad Seed. He's Dr. Sam Metcalf in Arachnophobia. And he's Papa Chuck Manning in (laughs) MacGyver Season 2, Episode 2, The Eraser. Yeah. The mafioso leader guy. Lawrence Pressman played Dick. That's the ex-husband of the Jane Fonda character. He was Tom Hannon in Shaft and Coach Marshall in American Pie. Peggy Pope was Margaret, the former drunk by the end of the film. She's in. She's Elvira in The Last Starfighter. Elvira, is that correct? Yeah, um, she, just one of the people in the, uh, the trailer park. And she's named Elvira. Yeah. She's also Mrs. Kendall in Once Bitten and Sister Angela in Choke which is a weird movie, the Sam Rockwell one. Yeah, I thought that was a good movie. Yeah, I liked yeah, it. it. It's bizarre. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure the implication of the film is that the Sam Rockwell character is like a direct descendant of Jesus or something like that. Earl Bowen played Perkins. He was Nestor One earlier this year in Battle Beyond the Stars. He's also Dr. Eisendrath in Naked Gun 33 and a third and Dr. Silberman in the first three Terminator films. Yeah. I like that his character is like this slow descent into madness. Yeah. Like, cause in the second one, when he's like, when he's, when he sees like these things with his own eyes and then his very, very short term part in part three, where he's trying to console somebody and he's having like PTSD about it. Uh, Michael Delano played the motorcycle cop. He was the casino manager in oceans 11 and 12. And he played Forrestal in commando. David Price was Josh Newstead. That's the son of the Lily Tomlin character who rolled the joint. He played Tony in Mommy Dearest next year. He's also Desmond in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And he directed Children of the Corn 2, Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde. And he produced the first Leprechaun film. Hmm. Peter Hobbs played a doctor. We just had him as the motel owner in Any Which Way You Can. So literally just had him like two movies ago. And he's also uh, in The Man with Two Brains, Andromeda Strain, and Sleeper. And then the last credit I had here was Esther Sutherland, who is credited as Janitress, 
which I guess is what you would call a female janitor if you had to differentiate. She's credited as janitress. Wow. And uh, we just had her as sissy and stir crazy. But I think she's the woman at the hospital who says we got another stiff in the john like i feel like that was an effort to try to be progressive and it was it exactly worse. the opposite yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, those are all the credits i had for this one i love this movie i think all the performances are great um i do agree with you that the pacing is a little weird mm-hmm. but I, I it never loses steam even no, if no, the, no. the story like takes very strange turns at different times um everything works really well and all the characters are totally like believably fun and weird yeah i I like this movie. I, I knew I liked this movie going into it. Um, I, like you, hadn't seen it in probably 15 years. Um, and I, So I didn't remember a lot aside from the fact that I really enjoyed it. Um, and, I, and I stand by that. I still really like it. But the ending, a lot of those that, that tagged on bits at the end bother me. And, it, and I realize that it really bothers me that, you know, Dabney Coleman comes back and you know, has basically prevented them from, you know, getting away with what they were trying to get away Which with. Which was to get him so in trouble. On, right. So on their own power, they lost. And mm-hmm. the only thing that saves them in the end is by chance that this guy comes down and appreciates what they've done and takes him away from them. Yeah. Um, that is weird. And I also, in my memory... They're torturing him for more of the movie than they are in this. Because here, they just take him to a house, and he's at the house the whole time. And Mm -hmm. there's, I mean, aside from the garage door gag, there's really not much to his his confinement. Right. Um, Which, for some reason, I thought it was like he was escaping constantly, and they kept trapping him again. But not really. Yeah. Um, It just feels like it's a secondhand win. Like yeah. it's, they didn't win under their own power. They like, they made all these changes and it, and it was kind of coincidental that the boss came down and said, yeah, no, this is good. And, and I'm going to, I, I'm going to solve your problem as opposed to giving this guy more power and, and mm-hmm. keeping him right where he is, yeah. you know, like it could have very easily gone any way. Like they had no control over their fate at the end here. And that's frustrating. To yeah. Me. Yeah. And also the Roz character who was at one point in the film savvy enough to sit in the bathroom with her legs up so she could hear these three women talk because she was suspicious of them in general is not suspicious of them moving forward after she learns of this plot to kill Mr. Hart. Yeah. Seems very strange. Um, but everyone else in the whole office, I love the Margaret character and I love um, the chemistry between the three leads are they're just so great together and i like you said i really like the uh the performance from uh from dabney during dolly's fantasy well, where he actually gets to play a different character yeah the way he plays all of their fantasies is really wonderful but he's so like goofy and awkward in yeah. dora lee's which is what's that aftershave you got got on stud he's like he's like embarrassed to say what it's called yeah but he's great i love him yeah it's obviously a thumbs up for me yeah oh by far it's thumbs up i and i i don't mean to complain too much about it i just i i feel like i i could even see somebody i'd really hope it'd be somebody i like and respect remaking this movie and fixing these little bits at the end that that you know the women can stay sort of in control and empowered do we want to do this right now who 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 would play each of the people oh god i didn't come prepared for this 
Are, are we are we sticking, we can do this jointly? Are we sticking to the same like character profile? Like yes, country western woman, hardened employee, new employee. Yes, I I honestly I feel like it's it's thievery, but may, and maybe she's too old to play the part. But I love the the casting of Allison Janney as the Lily Tomlin character, which is what they did when it when it was on Broadway. It's a very short lived Broadway production, but. Um, that's brilliant to me because I feel like they have the same energy. I, I, like, I do agree. I think she might be a little too old for it now. Yeah, because I think they're supposed to be in their 30s. Yeah. I mean, I could see, and, and maybe I'm just thinking about this because of her cover of Jolene, but I could actually see Miley oh, Cyrus absolutely. being 100%. the Dolly Parton. Yes, Miley Cyrus 100% as Doralee. Because she's the country singer, and yep. I, I, I think she's got – decent acting chops i mean like i'm not saying hannah montana is like this amazing thing but i think that she's got some skills how old is she she's 27 so she's she's younger than i thought she was yeah i was thinking like aubrey plaza as the lily tomlin or like someone that just Mm. seems a little bit angrier but also like quick-witted enough to insult people to their face without them noticing it i don't know i think it needs to be somebody who's a little bit older and a more well aubrey's 36 i but i still think it's more more authority rather than snark uh, yeah exactly um yeah. i feel like jane fonda is actually the hardest one to cast of the three i just want miley cyrus to play dolly parton in like <laughs> a biography like i want her to do a a biopic of dolly parton's life because she's got the singing chops 100 percent and obviously she's dolly parton's goddaughter and they they're they look alike like young dolly parton looks like miley cyrus i mean the hair is obviously different but the face is the exact same face mm-hmm. would you think like someone like emily blunt maybe i was thinking like uh for the um lily tomlin part maybe somebody like a rachel mcadams because she i mean she's yeah she's she's got that authoritative smart thing happening yeah and she was kind of in that position in um what was that uh morning news movie with harrison ford oh morning glory yeah yeah like where she that. was kind of getting looked over by everybody and she'd mm-hmm. been there for a long time yeah she's good and then just jane fonda could play the third person <laughs> i i should check out that grace and frankie show though because they they have a very genuine chemistry together oh. no i mean I think the setup for that show is funny, but I don't know what the rest of the show is about. What is the premise? I don't even um, know. Both of their husbands uh, realize that they are gay and in love with each other. Oh, okay. So their husbands run off with, with themselves. <laughs> so do they just trade houses, basically? Like uh, one of the husbands oh, moves to the other house, and then so she moves back in with Lily uh, Tomlin? I, I don't know. Like I yeah. said, I, beyond, okay. beyond the setup of the two husbands, like – Realizing Do you know who play the other? husbands? Sam Watterson is one of them. Oh, that's great. How would you feel about Mila Kunis in the Lily? I Tomlin was thinking, role? I was thinking that actually. Yeah? Um, I think she could do it. Yeah. Martin Sheen is the other. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I should check that out then. I love both of them. That's funny. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Mila works fine uh, for Lily. And maybe somebody, but I feel like the the Jane Fonda role needs to be like somebody who's like a little younger, but like feels really sweet and innocent. And so I was thinking somebody more like like Lily James. 
maybe I could see that. What about um for Lily uh, Emma Stone? I was actually thinking about her. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think Lily James has the right energy for that character because she could play like completely bewildered. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I'm imagining. Um, do you guys have your letterbox set up for this? I do. All right, what's your number there, Jess? I have this at sixteenth. Okay. For the year, it is below Tess and above Night of the Juggler. I have this at fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> you went up to me. Uh, um, it is just below Saturn Three and just above Foxes. I didn't do this because of you guys. I have it at fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> It's just under Little Darlings and just above It's My Turn. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing the formula. We want the formula. We want the formula. <laughs> I want that formula. I'm going to put both of those clips in. And I'm going to leave this clip of me saying I'm going to put the clips in. <laughs> And not actually put the clips in. And not put the clips in. <laughs> oh, my God. You just saved me some work. Solid joke. And then I'll put the clips in here. No, I won't. We want a formula. We want a formula. I want that formula! Which IMDB describes like so. The synthetic fuel production formula invented by the Nazis at the end of World War II to create Orange Julius. No, that's not what it says. The synthetic fuel production formula invented by the Nazis at the end of World War II is sought after by some who aim to sell it and by others who wish to destroy it. Why do you, why do you have to destroy f- synthetic fuel production? Because oh, because it's going to replace your... It's going to replace big oil. Oh, so this is like a... This is like Cars 2 situation. Yeah. Not like a raise the titanic situation where it's dangerous Mm -hmm. the problem is that it's not dangerous enough we leave you now with the trailer for the formula for more than 40 years the most important discovery of this century has been kept secret these two men know why mgm presents George C. Scott, Marlon Brando, in The Formula. They will meet during the investigation of a bizarre murder, when evidence of the formula mysteriously reappears. Genesis turns out to be something the Nazis considered very top secret. And whatever it is, it's still in German. In a world starved for energy, no secret is more important than the formula. And nothing is more dangerous than knowing it. What did Genesis stand for? Synthetic fuel. 
George C. Scott. You trade lives and human dignity for profit. Marlon Brando. Money, not morality, is the principal commerce of civilized nation. You're not in the oil business, you're in the oil shortage business. I wish some way I could nail you. And Marta Keller. Just following orders, right? Yes. Right in the bed, right? I don't see how you can make love to someone. And then two minutes later, pump seven slugs into his body. If I were in the murder business, then blow your brains all over that Venetian line back there, right here, right now. In the motion picture thriller from the best-selling novel by Steve Shagan. The people will accept the 12 now because we can blame it on the Arabs. Arthur, you're uh, missing the point. We are the Arabs. George C. Scott, Marlon Brando, and Marta Keller. The Formula.